0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be speaking with Professor Jennifer Regan Lefebvre about her book published by the University of California Press in 2022 and about to come out in paperback, titled Imperial Wine, How the British Empire Made Wine's New World, which is a really interesting history that combines sort of British imperial history and accounts of settler colonialism in places like Australia, South Africa, and New Zealand with wine history, which despite the fact that all three of those countries make a lot of wine and have done for a while, we don't often put these things together. And it turns out when they are put together and put into conversation, lots of really interesting things are revealed. So Jennifer, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast to tell us all about it.
1: My pleasure, Miranda. Could
0: you start us off, please, before we get too far into all things wine, telling us a little bit about yourself and explain why you decided to write this book?
1: Well, that's very kind of you, Miranda, because everybody wants to talk about wine Um, and I'm much less interesting than wine. But my name is Jennifer Regan Lefebvre. As you said, I'm professor of history at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. That's on the east coast of the United States. And I teach British, British imperial and Irish history. Um, So The way I came to write this book is I've long been interested in what's known as the empire at home in modern British history. So for the past two, two and a half centuries. And that's really the question of how did British people experience having an overseas empire? So it's all very well to say, like, oh, well, the British empire was very, very powerful. And it's really important to investigate what that experience is like in a colonial setting for people who were affected in British colonies by it um, and the nefarious effects of imperialism. But it's also interesting to ask the question, what does this actually mean for people in Britain? How did they experience having an empire? Um, Did this um, very powerful entity have a dramatic impact on their lives? And the way I explored this in my first book was in looking at Irish and Indian nationalists and how they engaged with politics in London. But I also was interested in commodities because um, the import of a lot of different foodstuffs into modern Britain is one of the big ways in which imperial trade networks shape British people's lives. And I was interested in coffee and chocolate and tea and reading a lot about these things. And I thought, well, no one's really done wine. And one of my colleagues said, well, you know, don't be daft. It's because Britain doesn't make wine. And I thought, wait a second, a lot of places that do make wine were British colonies. When did they start making it? And then I went down this rabbit hole of looking at wine production in former British colonies and discovered that um, it was something that that started at the onset, at the arrival of British settler colonists. So, for example, in Australia, in New Zealand, um, in what becomes South Africa, it starts with the Dutch, with Dutch colonizers and then continues with the British Uh, The British also attempt this in parts of North America. And, of course, the Spanish do the same thing with their colonies in South America in what would be modern-day California. So suddenly this was all revealed to me, and it's one of those things that once you see it, you can't unsee it. This really important role that European empires must have had in creating what we now call the new world of wine. So that's a very long answer to your question of how I got into this topic
0: (laughs) But I think it illuminates it really well because it does kind of go, oh, is this even a question to ask or answer and then go, hang on a second, wait, it's right in front of us. How could we not have seen this uh, before? So I think it's a really useful start to our conversation on this. Um, And to kind of continue the big picture, what are we looking at vibe of what we're doing at the
1: minute, can you tell us about the two foundational concepts for the book? Sure. I say the two foundational concepts are first that we should keep using this term new world to talk about wine, but we should understand it differently. So I spent a lot of time in the introduction to the book talking about the different ways in which scholars and also wine writers and people who work in hospitality services have used the term new world versus old world and these are very common terms um in in wine you know oh i love old world wines oh i don't drink new world wines and so on and sometimes they refer to production methods for example the fact that what people think of as the new world tend to be larger scale production Um, whereas the old world tends to be smaller firms and boutique wineries and so on. Sometimes it refers to taste, the idea that new world wines are bigger and bolder and fruitier, and old world wines are a little bit more restrained, perhaps more refined. And I say, you know what, this is really missing the point. Those are all interesting, and I can see how they're useful for people, for example, who work in hospitality. But what really makes something a new world wine, I argue, is that it was established as a wine producing country through European imperialism. And so that's why Australia, South Africa, New Zealand, Chile, Argentina, the United States, that's why they're new world producers. It's not because of the styles of wine they make. Um, It's not because of the production methods that dominate or the role of technology. It's because of the shared history. And I think this is a pretty bold argument. And, um, you know, some people have, have, Well, let me back up a second. There was a recent decision by the Court of Master Sommeliers in the United States, which is a training and awards body, uh, of wine education, but for people who work in hospitality, who are sommeliers who work in restaurants. And they recently made an announcement. This would be, I guess, the end of 2023, the beginning of 2024, that they were going to stop using the term new world. And I think this is because that organization has um, come under a lot of criticism for its inclusivity, and they felt that this term was, was laden with difficult history, and so they were just going to stop using it. And I think this is a terrible missed opportunity because I think as wine consumers, we should be more conscious of the history of, of the wines that we consume and not less conscious. So that's the first foundational concept is that we should think about a new world of wine, um, that it has meaning, but it has a historic meaning. It's fixed in the past. And then the second main concept in the book is that wine is part of what historians call the civilizing mission of European imperialism meaning that European settlers thought that wine was one of the tools they could use to demonstrate um, that they were spreading good civilizing principles by taking over other parts of the world. This is something I think that they used to rationalize their exploits to themselves and also to justify their rule over indigenous peoples. And what I mean by this, and it's actually very easy to see with, with wine in a way that it's not easy to see with other practices, but that wine was something that could improve people's lives. Um, it could take land, which Europeans often perceived to be barren. Of course, it wasn't. And if by planting vineyards, you could make something literally fruitful and productive out of it. Um, it's somewhat biblical. I mean, wine uh, features prominently in the Christian Bible. Uh, Christianity was also a big part of the European civilizing mission, bringing uh, missionary religion to those who didn't have it. Um, where am I going with this? Mm.
0: I mean, I think that makes sense as a foundation. That's a foundational idea of what they were trying to do with winemaking as part of empires. Is that right?
1: That is right. Good save, Miranda. Thank you. <laughs>
0: If I can build on that, um, I think that that is a really interesting kind of impetus or stimulus uh, of empire towards this, because when you, you know, reading further into the book about kind of how empire did these things, I hadn't really thought of it as that kind of first thing being sort of that ideological aspect, I was sort of expecting you to tell me about like, oh, well, they sent this many crates to these people, as a sort of starting point, and yet having this ideological and in some senses religious aspect um, kind of helps solve the question that was rising in my mind of like, but this took a really long time to work. Like, why did they bother? Why did they stick with it? So given this sort of explanation you've given us of the ideological and religious aspect, can you tell us a bit about kind of what happened when settlers went to colonize with all of this in mind? What actually happened when they got there? Like how successful was this initially?
1: How else did empire help them achieve this goal in reality? Oh, that is such a rich question and makes me think of so many different things. I mean, first of all, wine is a cultural good that is imbued with so much meaning. Um, you know, it's it's not like pouring a glass of water for yourself. You pour a glass of wine and you have certain expectations about it. Um, and if you identify yourself as a wine drinker, that causes people to think certain things about you culturally and socially. So it's not some kind of neutral good. It has a lot of meaning attached to it. So. And it's also I, I love stories of of failure and almost failure, oh, as amazing. historians often you know we're looking at you know something happened it was successful how did it happen let's go backwards and unpack it, and I'm just as interested in stories about how people tried for a long time to make something happen and it failed or it didn't quite work they want they way they wanted to, I think these are just really interesting stories about human persistence, uh, sometimes about hubris, sometimes about having unrealistic expectations. But so the basic thing is, is that, um, you know, British settlers, when we look at Australia, for example, um, you know, start planting vines at, really as soon as they arrive, you know, in the 1790s, there are vineyards that are being created. And their initial success is, is very slow. I mean, it's hard to make good wine. Usually, when you plant vines, you have to grow uh, grape vines from cuttings. You don't grow them from seeds. Um, so, grape seeds are useful. So, they, they plant their cuttings, which they brought with them across the oceans. And then you're usually looking at a few years until you can yield good wine. I mean, you can make terrible wine without too much difficulty, but to make a really good drinkable product takes a lot of care and expertise and it takes time. So it's a big investment. So you can tell just from the fact that people were willing to invest in vineyards that they had big plans for them. And I think it comes down to a few things. I think they thought that Empire would be um, a really good market for wine. And that wine could potentially be almost a plantation-style cash crop, the way you have, for example, tobacco in Virginia. Um, Or wool, which is obviously being tried at the same time. So, um, So it's this idea that wine could be really profitable, Wine could also be a force for social good. If you think about the establishment of Australia um, with British settlers, British and Irish settlers, Scottish settlers, um, you know, they were largely undesirables. So it was a convict population initially. And there's this idea in 18th and 19th century Britain that drinking wine is a kind of symptom of civilization rather than a marker of it. What I mean by that is. There are social commentators who look at Britain's cities, and they see a lot of working class people who are getting drunk on cheap, hard liquor, uh, things like gin, and they think, well, you look at them, and then you look at all the antisocial behavior. Compare that to a bunch of wine drinkers who are genteel and who are drinking at home quietly. It's just not the same thing. If we could just get the working classes to drink wine, their behavior would change accordingly. Now, there are all sorts of things that are wrong with this logic, but it's very powerful (laughs) as part of the civilizing mission um, to think that, well, if we can get all these reprobates who we've sent to Australia to start making wine and drinking it themselves... A lot of the social problems that they were part of back in Britain will go away. They will become different people through the consumption of wine. Their children aren't going to turn to rum and grog. Instead, they're going to be sipping wine and they're going to be healthy and, you know, you know cheerful and, and good law abiding citizens. So there's this huge dream about that. And I think there's also a practical element, which is that, you know, most ships in the vast British Navy and also the Merchant Navy have wine on board. It's considered to be a staple good that you travel with. Um, They also want to have wine as part of their, their lives once they settle in new places. And it's a real pain if you have to import wine from, say, Portugal and bring it all the way to Australia. Wouldn't it be great if you could just make your own? So it's kind of an import substitution strategy. Like we'll just make our own and then we won't be reliant on our political rivals markets for this good. Instead, we could be supplying them. And to a certain degree, it works. I mean, there are lots of records of French ships that are docked in Sydney that are buying up Australian wine in like the 1880s and 1890s because it's the closest wine that they can get. So there's a logic to this. But in terms of like Australia becoming this massive exporting, sending wine all over the world, putting the French out of business in the 19th century, absolutely not. It does not happen. (laughs) And yet from that answer, we get a lot of ideas
0: of kind of why they kept trying Um, which is useful to understand, given how how many kind of things were ranged against this dream being realized. Um, One of which is back home, I suppose, in Britain that I'd like to ask you about because you talked about the idea of kind of, you know, a market for this. It's our cash crop. Well, you can make it all you want. You could even ship it to Britain. But of course, you have to be allowed to sell it there. And as I understand from your book, this this was not as straightforward a procedure as perhaps uh, was assumed in places like Australia. So can you tell us about the debates in British Parliament around tariffs in the 1860s and how this impacted colonial
1: wine production
0: and export?
1: Sure. Uh, I wasn't particularly interested in tariffs before I started researching this book. Um, I still wasn't very interested in tariffs while I was writing it, but it actually ended up being one of the big stories of the book, is the role that tariffs played, or I should also say customs duties. Um, Duties are imposed at the border on a certain type of good. A tariff is usually tied to a particular producer. Because, you know, all wine coming into Britain is coming from another country, the two terms get mixed about and inflated. But anyway, in the 19th century in Britain, a lot of duties are on wine are tied to alcoholic beverage percentage, how strong the wines are. And this is because one of the most popular styles were actually fortified wines, wines that had um, some hard alcohol, usually brandy, added to them. And that can be a, a, a really important um, and really wonderful uh, type of wine, for example, port, uh, sherry. Madeira, these are the types of wines we're talking about. So they're more like 16 to 20% in terms of alcohol content, whereas still table wines, we're thinking more like 10 to 13% in this period. What happens though is that Australian wines arriving in Britain are of a higher alcohol content than, say, French wines. And as such, they end up being taxed at a different rate, which makes them relatively expensive compared to a lot of European wines. And Australian producers get really mad about this because they feel that they're at a double disadvantage. And what they try to explain, you know, through various spokespeople for Australian winemakers, they try to explain to British audiences, look, we have something in Australia that you don't fully understand, and that's the sun. It's very hot here, our grapes get very ripe. That ripeness leads to higher alcohol levels in our wines, That's why they're so strong. You should not be penalizing us. We're part of the British Empire. We are contributing to the coffers of British imperial trade, and yet you're penalizing us because our wines are naturally strong. There's another way in which Australian winemakers are disadvantaged, and that's that their wines have to travel so far to get back to the British market. And I think we all know kind of anecdotally that um, if you open a bottle of wine and leave it out in your counter open, it's, it's going to go off after a few days. It's not going to taste its best. But if you open a bottle of whiskey, it, it, will, it, will, it will remain drinkable for a few years. So the same logic, higher alcohol wines transport better. Than low alcohol wines. So there's a certain incentive for Australian winemakers who are sending their wine around the world to just add a sneaky little bit of brandy to it, just to fortify it a little bit so it can make that arduous journey. So there are accusations in Britain that, well, if your Australian wines are really strong, it's because you're adulterating them. You're adding something to them that shouldn't be there. Namely, you're adding extra alcohol so that they survive the journey. And, you know, the Australians say, no, 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 it's just because we have hot sun, our our wines are naturally stronger. But certainly it's a bit of both. You know, there must have been people who were adulterating their wines. So there are issues here of trust, you know, what's actually in your wine. That's still a really important issue in the wine industry today because we don't have full labeling. Um, But there's also the issue that, um, you know, Australians were not given any kind of preferential rates in Britain in the 19th century just because they were part of the empire. And that really irked them because they felt that in producing wine, they were performing a kind of patriotic duty.
0: Mm. And yet we're not getting rewarded and in fact punished for it, which is a really interesting debate um, to have. So thank you for taking us through kind of the different sides of that. Staying in this aspect of the relationship, the kind of British market and the colonial producers, given the long journey, given the bright sunlight, et cetera, to what extent or, in what ways, I guess, were the tastes of British consumers like, did they like this wine? Did they tell people whether or not they liked the wine? Like, how did producers in colonial areas know what British consumers wanted? Was that even a feedback mechanism that existed?
1: Yes, it did. And it exists mostly through importers. Um, and there's one in particular who was one of the main importers of Australian and South African, or what he would say, colonial wines from the late 19th century up through the 1950s. And that's a company called Burgoyne, which is funny because it's probably an anglicization of Bourgogne or Burgundy in France. Um, But you know, the Burgoyne when he was operating as a wine importer had no connection to Burgundy. Um, So really the way it works is that he goes to Australia himself or he sends out his agents who go and taste wines and offer feedback on site and say, this is not what we're looking for. We need something else instead. Um, But he also has correspondence uh, with a lot of the winemakers saying, the wine you sent me is not suitable for the British market. You know, it's too strong. People are looking for something lighter. The one you gave me last year was much better. I don't know what you did differently this year, but you've got to fix it. So there's correspondence like that that shows that there's this back and forth between importers and the producers. And I think that's something really interesting about, you know, the history of trade that comes up in um, the history of wine which is that we often think like, oh, you should cut out the middleman, you know, this is just somebody who's taking extra money in the middle of a transaction. But actually, these intermediaries are really important to communicating taste in wine. And I think when I was writing this, I was inspired by the work of Thomas Brennan, who's written on 16th and 17th century France and shows how the role of brokers who were buying wine in rural France and selling it to Paris was so important. That you couldn't have had, you know, rural winemakers just, you know, individually going to the big city to try to sell their wares. They needed somebody to act as an intermediary to understand taste and also to have those trust networks where they could make those sales. And the same thing is happening. It's a much larger distance, um, but it's equally important in the late 19th century. So that's, that's really important. But I think, I think something else that comes up here, which was a fascinating discovery when I was researching and writing this book, is that there's no single wine market in Britain. Um, there are lots of different types of wine consumers. And it, to me, it tells us something really important that's a methodological point, which is that if we start with an assumption, for example, that only wealthy people drank wine in the 19th century in Britain, and they were mostly men, then we only go looking for sources that confirm that. But if we look at it from a different point of view, for example, the point of view of a wine importer who's trying to grow his market, and we look at how he markets his wines, and we look at how he writes about taste to his wine producers, you see something different. And you see that he's marketing his wine to people who are middle class, who are not necessarily wealthy. They're marketing it to women. They're marketing um, that wine as a kind of health drink, uh, one of the arguments they made up until the 1960s, which is kind of amazing, um, is that Australian wine was particularly good for people who had low iron because there was a, a lot of iron in the soil. Which, again, I'm not that kind of Dr. Miranda. I mean, this is, a, I think, medically dubious <laughs> <laughs> argument to make. But it was one that persisted in advertising of Australian wine for about 80 years. You know, drink this, it will be good for your iron levels. <laughs> so oh. I think... You know, what we discover, actually, that that wine that market is is larger and more fragmented than some historians have perhaps assumed. Hmm. Which is very important to point out, as you said, methodologically,
0: um, and helpful to kind of have looked at it and be able to tell us uh, a different or more nuanced story than we maybe had before. So it sounds like from those advertisements, I'm also not the kind of doctor that can decide whether or not they're medically accurate, but does seem suspect, but... Um, <laughs> And these middlemen who serve such a useful purpose that colonial winemakers are trying to get over these challenges um, and to make inroads into the British markets. Plural, um, are there other challenges that they're facing in this in terms of kind of late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, before world before World War One? Um, and are there other strategies they're using to try and get over them?
1: I mean, there are lots of challenges. You take um, the great distance. You take, um, for example, uh, the lack of infrastructure. So, you know, most, by definition, vineyards are in rural or agricultural areas. They're not in urban centers. They're not at ports. So you have the whole business of getting all the supplies that you need and then get, making the wine and getting it to market. So that's an issue. Um, you know, the Hunter Valley in Australia is one of the oldest uh wine-producing regions in the British imperial world, and it doesn't get trains until the 1870s. So you think, like, there's a lot of labour and there's a lot of planning that goes into just getting your wine to market. It's kind of amazing it happens at all, in a way. Um, So that's a concern. Um, Quality control is absolutely an issue. It's so hard. Again, this is historical methodology, which I think is so interesting. People often ask me, like, well, was the wine any good – and that's tough to say because, first of all, our language of taste is so culturally specific and has changed over time. So if I've got a description of somebody tasting the wines in the 1870s and describing them as, you know, fruity and strong, that really doesn't mean a lot to me now. And I don't have anything to compare it to. And even if we had wine from the 19th century, wine evolves and changes over time. It doesn't necessarily get better. Most wine doesn't. Um I'm guessing that if we found Australian wine from the 1870s, it would be well past its peak. But even if we had it, we couldn't taste it and know what it had tasted like in the past, right? So we're we're stuck there kind of knowing what this product was really like. But we do have a lot of complaints about Australian wine not being that great or, or New Zealand wine not being very good or South African wine not being that great. And some of this probably, you know, it's like they say in Belfast about the Titanic, it was fine when it left, um, I think it's the same thing for the <laughs> <laughs> South African wine. It was good when it was here and it, and then it was in a ship's hold for a few months and then it sat in customs waiting to be processed and so on. And by the time it got to consumers, it probably had deteriorated. That's just how things work. It's, it's a, it's a perishable product. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's one thing. Um, but I think also some of the, the discussions about taste and about how the wine at these places taste is is tinged with um, social expectations, or you could say snobbery, and in some cases, frank racism. So in particular, there's this this term that persists around conversations of South African wine in the 19th century. Now, South African wine was very popular in Britain. Um, In the 1850s, it was more popular than French wine. I mean, that's just... That's fact. And we we overlook that because, you know, later it becomes much less important. But again, in terms of methodology, if we start with an understanding that French wine has always been the most important, we go looking for that. And we miss the kind of obvious data that shows us that actually there was more South African wine being consumed in Britain in the middle of the 19th century than there was French. But anyway, I digress. What was I talking about?
0: <laughs> well, I think you were giving us a very helpful um, answer, kind of the number of things that colonial winemakers were contending with and getting British people to drink their wine. And yes. I actually wanted to kind of keep you on that topic, if I may, but change the chronology a little bit, change the time period. Does, Go on. does any of this get easier if we move from the kind of turn of the century
1: into like the interwar years? Absolutely. It does. It does. So. Um, Oh, I remember what I was going to say, which is that the discussion of South African wines, the term dirty often comes up like, oh, the wines Mm. taste dirty, which could be that they had some sediment in them. It could be an actual taste associated with a grape. But I think it's actually a um, a pejorative term to reference the fact that they were black people involved in its making. And that does not go away in the interwar period, but British colonies do get, well, now they're British dominions for the most part, they do get a leg up in tariff negotiations. Um, they also get, uh, there's a growth in, in colonial wines being imported into Britain in the beginning of the First World War. And that's simply because trade is so disrupted with many of the European producers of wine. So, you know, France and Germany are deeply involved in the fighting, and that means that they are not producing as much wine and they are not getting it to market, and then it is not reaching Britain safely. Well, also, you know, there was far less demand for German wine during the First World War Mm -hmm. in Britain. Um, So there is a little bit of advantage because Australia and South Africa, for example, can step in to replace that European wine but then there are alcohol restrictions that are imposed during the war. It's harder to sell wine, um, you know, and it is a global war and global economies are bound up in it. So they also, they also take a hit during the war. And they also lose people who go off to fight, you know, uh, the Anzac troops, Australia, New Zealand, some of those people would have been working in vineyards. So there's a labor loss that happens. But actually the interwar period is a time when colonial wines have huge A relatively large success in British markets. And it's because they get some uh, advantageous tariffs. And it's also, I think, because of a growing consumer society um, of more people buying goods like wine. And there's a real push. You can see this if you look at the records of wine merchants to market colonial wines to middle class and probably some upper working class drinkers. You know, they're sold as inexpensive, as good for parties, as accessible. You know, they don't have unpronounceable names. It's, it's, <laughs> it's easy to see what they are. They're sold in big jugs sometimes. So if you have a lot of people coming over and you want to make some punch, this is a great idea. So I think there's a real push to actually get people to drink um, colonial wines in this period. And they have a lot of commercial success.
0: Hmm. Thinking about that kind of marketing side of things, the consumer aspect, Um, Is that or were those the main things that consumers knew about colonial wine at this point or kind of what information did they have or not have when trying to decide, you know, what wine to buy?
1: Well, I I mean, I think they have what consumers always have. Um, They have a label or they have a name at least um, and they have a price and then they have whoever the intermediary is, for example, the person who works in the wine shop who's selling it to you. And. When it came to marketing colonial wines, they also actually use advertisements in places like um, tube stations and at bus stops or on the side of buses. It's very common to see ads for colonial wines. Um, but you also have colonial wine being tied up with an idea of patriotism. It's a kind of by British empire uh theme that you know this is made in in australia and australia is is loyal to britain and australia helped out during the war and it's a good thing to drink australian wine so if you're nervous about wine and you're looking at these different bottles this seems like a sure thing like well actually you know maybe i'll try this australian one it's 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 keenly priced and i can feel positive about this australian association
0: Hmm. all right well that that makes sense especially as you're saying the kind of growth of people um, consuming and buying wine. So that that makes sense. I was surprised then to read in the book that if we move the time period further forward, um, there really does seem to be quite a lot of success in the interwar period. And yet, as you say in the book, quote, colonial wine consumption in Britain stumbles, then falls after 1945. And in fact, takes quite a while until the
1: 1980s to revive. Why was there this stumble and fall? That's a great question. I mean, the simple answer is I don't totally know. Um, mm. Mm, I know, I know. Next book, right? Um, <laughs> so, I mean, colonial wine production is severely disrupted during the Second World War, and trade with Britain is disrupted too. Um, a lot of times, I see people between, say, 1945 and 1948, drinking Algerian wine in Britain, uh, as this was easier to obtain. So there's, there's a logistical problem that's that's part of this, um, that it's hard to get that wine to the British market. Um, I think also there is, um, there is reaction in Britain to events that are happening in South Africa, political events, that may also sour the relationship there and the desire for South African wines as the apartheid state is being created. Um, but I also had, see a lot of evidence that... Um, British consumers did not seem to let apartheid interfere with their enjoyment of South African wines. I think perhaps part of the issue is that European wines are are just enjoying a leg up. Uh, One thing I see through the 1960s and 70s is uh, a lot of Eastern European wine and Southern European wine that's showing up in British wine lists, you know, a lot of Bulgarian wines, for example, um, you know, being sold in places like the co-op,
0: Mm-hmm.
1: a lot of inexpensive Italian wines as well, inexpensive German wines. So there are a lot of different European wines that are showing up in Britain um, that are doing quite well. So I think there's that competition. The other thing, and I suppose I think there's a there's a methodological mistake here that, that perhaps others have made, um, which is when we're talking about wine today, we're assuming that everybody's drinking still table wine and that they're drinking it Um, you know, straight up in a glass. And that wine is meant to taste of the the grapes. It's meant to be an authentic, unadulterated product. That's a fairly modern conception of what wine is and how it's supposed to be drunk. And some of the most popular styles of wine were, as I mentioned earlier, those fortified wines. And Australia and South Africa continue to have success with Australian sherry, South African port, um, through the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And sherry and port were not simply consumed as dessert wines. They were consumed throughout the day. They were consumed with and without food. Um, and if we look back and we just kind of discount those as a different category of wine, we do in fact miss the full story of wine.
0: Mm. Does that make sense? No, it absolutely does um, and very well worth making uh, to, to think about kind of how this is part of the landscape of all the things people are drinking uh, and get a better picture of that time. If we continue moving through time, though, um, we do have a bit of an optic, even so far perhaps as, quote, a triumphant conquest of colonial wines or now former colonies wines in the British wine market once we move to the 1980s. What is
1: happening here? So much is happening. I think the big the big story is that, you know, Australian and New Zealand wines in particular have gotten a lot better. Um, there have been a lot of interventions to improve the quality of wine in those countries. And wine critics are taking an open mind and they're starting to taste them again and saying, actually, these are some really, really good wines. There is clearly a kind of marketing pitch from the Australian wine body in the late 80s to celebrate the bicentenary of Australia with some special promotions on Australian wines. Um, You see this, I remember Marks and Spencer's did a big uh, promotion on Australian wines at this time. I remember looking at the brochures at the Marks and Spencer archives, and that was good fun. Um, and I think there's also a general interest in Australian culture, which which helps things along, and um, a lot of reciprocal traveling schemes. They get more British people out and going to the Antipodes in the late 80s and then into the early 90s. Um, I mean, I like to 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 credit Kylie Minogue with with most of this uptick <laughs> in Australian <and> sales. Um, <laughs> but I mean, one of the most fun things about writing the book was getting to mention Crocodile Dundee. Mm. And, and I never really thought when I did my PhD in, you know, Victorian political history that that was going to happen. So, <laughs> so that was quite special. Um, but so there are a lot of things going on. I mean, the wines are getting better. They're being marketed more aggressively. I think the British populace is, is more open to new types of wine and new types of experiences. Um, and all these conditions, you know, come together to make it uh, more palatable to British people. Uh, wine consumption is also going up. And it's kind of a chicken and egg question. Are is wine consumption going up because you have a lot of inexpensive, friendly, accessible wines from former British colonies um, that don't have unpronounceable French names? Or, um, you know, is it that people are drinking more wine so they're just branching out a little bit more? I, th- I think it's a bit of both. But it's certainly a a really important time period, the late 80s into the early 90s. And for some wine writers who are writing not that long afterwards, they feel like these wines have come from nowhere. You know, Mm. like, whoa, where is this Australian wine coming from? And actually, if you look at the longer history, it's really just that the previous few decades had been a blip. Mm -hmm. They had been a kind of lull in interest in these wines out of a much longer history. So the fact that Australian wines were not very popular in the 60s and 70s in Britain makes you think in the 1980s that they'd come from nowhere but actually they had been around much much longer and they had been popular before Mm.
0: so now that we've gone from goodness the the mid 1800s actually no you started us off in the 1790s um all the way up to the 1990s there's a lot that's happened that definitely helps us get rid of this myth of kind of oh the colonial wines came out of nowhere and they're still of course quite popular in britain today But if we zoom out and think about the big picture and think of this very much from our kind of historian's perspective, what are some of the ways that you think looking at wine allows us to explore contradictions in Britain's colonial empire?
1: I mean, I think wine is really great for looking at issues of historical methodology and also historiographical issues in general. I think one of the big contradictions is the nature of the empire itself. Um, I think there's a popular perception as empire, as kind of, you know, the, the metropole, let's say London knows all controls all, and that there's kind of one model and that someone's waving a magic wand and, you know, territories are conquered and they become British. And of course, historians have questioned this for decades, but wine really shows you how fragmented it is, how colonies are different from each other, how they're administered differently and, um, how there are different levels uh, and impacts, I think, of indigenous collaboration or accommodation of, I should say more correctly, of British presence on their land. Oh. So um, I think you just start to see the variety and diversity in how there's not some grand master plan that just plays out automatically. Um, I think we're seeing in the case of of winemakers, their struggles You know, how they don't know what's going to come next, how they are not guaranteed support from London for any of their ventures, um, how they don't always know what they're doing. There's a serious lack of expertise. I mean, you think about just the idea that Australia is going to create wine through the labor of, you know, people from major industrial cities in Britain, many of whom have possibly never been on a farm. And now they're going to make wine and compete with the French. It's kind of a wild idea. Uh So I think it shows you a a degree of imperial hubris that has to go into this project, but also where there are so many little fault lines in it. And I think it's also one of the great ironies of this story um, is that you have this long persistence of these colonial wine industries that hope to supply the British market, that sometimes for certain time periods, you know, South Africa in the 1820s through 1850s, um, Australia in the interwar period, successfully do provide the British market with cheap, uh, accessible wines. You also have growing you know, domestic markets within these colonies for wine, but you don't have this great commercial success until long after the colonial period is over say, the 1980s and 1990s. So it's a kind of irony that what they're supposed to achieve to demonstrate um, the power of the British Empire is only realized long after that empire has been dismantled. Oh.
0: No, some very interesting things um, to think about as we take through, you know, take in the whole history and the answers you've given us. Um, And of course, the book has loads more detail. So for anyone who wants way more of this, um, please go read the book that is, as I said, coming out soon in paperback. um, So even more available. I only have one question left, Jennifer, if you don't mind. Um, the book is coming out in paperback, so things have been happening with it, but with the publisher, you've not had to touch it um, during that process, I imagine. So is there anything you've been working on since you finished this book or are currently working on that you'd like to highlight?
1: Well, I've done a few things with it with the publisher. Um, you know, I rewrote the blurb for the paperback. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I've been giving talks on it. And and that's been really fun. And there's a Chinese version coming out and an audio book soon, too. Mm. But um, what I'm working on, well, mostly I, I answer emails from undergraduates, and I run an academic department. But <laughs> I am actually really excited to be co-editing the Bloomsbury cultural history of wine, which is going to be a six volume from antiquity to the present day cultural history of wine. And I'm co-editing that with my friend and colleague, Charles Luddington, who's written a great history of wine in 18th century Britain, which I I think is a must read. Um, And so Charles and I are, we've pulled together over 50 authors who look at the cultural history of wine in a lot of different domains across the world um, over the past, well, 4,000 years. So it's really exciting. I'm hoping that will be out in 2026. It's a lot of moving parts, but I think we've assembled a a really um, amazing cast of, of, of authors and it, it's really exciting how dynamic wine history is i think even just a few years ago people would kind of scoff when i said i'm working on the history of wine oh i bet the research is really fun for that mhm um and it was but um but it's it's a serious academic endeavor and i hope what i've what i've shown in this podcast is is that there are a lot of questions of, of what we know about the past and how we know the past that you can explore through wine. And we can also learn a lot about wine as a consumable product, about mm-hmm. the ethics of wine consumption, about its history, and, and hopefully we can be more enlightened consumers. So, so that's what I'm working on. And then I have some few personal projects which um, are not going as fast as I'd like and I'm not ready to talk about yet. <laughs> <laughs> but there will be other, other solo author books. Brilliant. Well, lots to
0: look forward to then. Um, Thank you for giving us that sort of sneak preview. Um, And of course, while you are working on it, uh, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, again, titled Imperial Wine, How the British Empire Made Wine's New World, published by the University of California Press. Jennifer, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you so much, Miranda.
1: It's been an absolute pleasure.